0: Well, I absolutely love Easter, and it's kind of an odd thing, Easter Sunday, because it's not like you don't know what we're going to talk about, and here's why I love Easter. I think Easter is the perfect time, yes, it's the perfect weekend for anybody who's ever considered becoming a follower of Jesus and putting their faith in Christ. I mean, maybe you've been reading books or listening to podcasts or... Maybe you've been watching our services online or 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 you've been attending another church, perhaps, and you're at that point where you're thinking, you know, I, I I think I understand this whole thing. I think I believe it. I I think I'm ready, but but how do I seal the deal? How do I get there? How do I become one of you, so to speak? What do you have to do? So I just think Easter is the perfect perfect time, and we're going to get real specific about that in a few minutes. The other thing that I love about Easter is for those of you who kind of have both feet on the brakes when it comes to matters of faith, and especially when it comes to Jesus, if you are only going to come to church once or twice in a year, and I I mean in a normal non-pandemic year, we all know about that. Then Easter really is the best weekend for you to attend church because Easter is when we talk about the one thing that addresses and 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 kind of does does an end round uh, end run around all of your objections. And here's what I mean by that. I would like, even if you never have considered the Christianity thing or this Jesus talk, is just not your thing, and you may not have your arms crossed on the outside, but they're crossed on the inside, that type of thing. I would like to challenge you to think about becoming a Christian in spite of the fact that you know some Christians, in spite of the fact that maybe you used to work for one, in spite of the fact that maybe you're even married to one, in spite of the fact that you grew up with a bunch of them around you in spite of the fact that you think, well, uh, we're all hypocrites, in spite of your bad church experience in the past, or in spite of the fact that you think there's nothing to all of this, because anyway, it's all just a myth, I want you to really consider it. Now, even if that's where you find yourself, we sincerely hope that you'll consider it even though you've had pain in your life. Even though God hasn't answered your prayers, even though you lost your mom and she was a good person, or maybe you lost your dad or a child or a spouse, someone near you, I would like you to consider, at least consider, becoming a follower of Jesus. Because, because of Easter, because Easter provides that end run around all of your questions. Now, here is some great news. The foundation of the Christian faith is not Christians. And the foundation of the Christian faith is not the behavior of certain Christians. The foundation of the Christian faith isn't even answered prayer. The foundation of the Christian faith isn't having all of your questions answered and answered the way you'd like them answered the foundation of our faith is what we celebrate at Easter. You see, Easter addresses something that there is no other plausible explanation for. And here's what I mean by that. There's really no plausible explanation for the church. There's no plausible explanation. Think about this. There are millions and millions of people all over the world this weekend who are celebrating a Jewish carpenter's son who lived 30 years of his life in obscurity and who went public with some radical teaching and some crazy miracles for about three years. He never traveled more than maybe 30 miles from home. He never wrote a book. And yet over a third of the world's population on this very weekend are going to gather in his name and sing similar songs in languages you and I have never heard of, and have dedicated their lives to Jesus Christ. And there is no plausible explanation to why that happened, except for what we celebrate at Easter. Think about it this way. When I say Nero, you know who Nero is. Nero was a Roman emperor. You couldn't tell me one thing that he did as an emperor— The only thing you know about Nero is that he fed Christians to the lions. That, historically speaking, Nero, an emperor of Rome, became a footnote in the story of Christianity. And that's in itself unbelievable when you think about it. Let's try Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the first Roman emperor. Caesar Augustus made all kinds of reforms in Rome And look, we couldn't name one of them if our life depended on it. You probably couldn't tell me anything Caesar did unless you are an historian or unless you actually teach history. But every single Christmas, in languages you've never heard of, in countries you've never visited, his name is mentioned. And it's not because of his great accomplishments. Caesar Augustus also has become a footnote in the story of the birth of a baby to a Jewish carpenter and his young wife. I mean, that does not make any sense. Did you know that for more than 300 years after Jesus was crucified, there was no Bible as we know it today? Nobody got together and had Sunday school classes or Bible studies. No one stood up in front of a group like this and and said, now take your Bible and turn to Ephesians or turn to the Gospel of John or turn to First Corinthians. They had no New Testament for nearly 400 years. So how in the world did the church survive all of that? And how did the church survive Rome, the occupied territory? How did the church survive Judaism? that actually saw Christianity as a knockoff cult of Judaism. Rome and the Jewish authorities teamed up to stomp out this crazy thing that was being called the way. But now there is no more Roman Empire. And there are far, far, far more Christians than practicing Jews. Indeed, it all is a great mystery. Now, here's what's not a mystery. What's not a mystery is how religions began. And what's not a mystery is how causes and movements began. In fact, there are people who actually study these things, things like how do movements begin or how do cultures change, how do nations shift or How do values rise and fall within people groups and tribes and and nations? And it's all pretty similar. There's sort of a, let's call it science to all of this. There are patterns to this. Generally what happens is there's unrest in a city or there's unrest in a nation and there are factions and divisions and then some charismatic type leader surfaces and they introduce change. And there's generally an old guard, and there is a status quo who resist it. But eventually, there's enough of that movement among the populace to overturn the status quo and to overturn the old way of thinking. And the new ways of thinking then are ushered in, and this person becomes a hero and a legend and someone whom people admire." And then, eventually, that person dies, leaves the scene, and people gather around and say, but we need to keep this dream alive. And so those ideas and principles are carried forward into the next generation, and then on into the next generation, and then from there into the next generation. This has happened over and over and over again in human history. This is how the world has changed and keeps changing. But when you take that same pattern that you see over and over and over in history, and in some cases even right in our own lifetimes, all over the world, you try to superimpose it over the story of Christianity, it just doesn't work. In fact, No reputable historian would take the common transition that happens within cultures and say, ah, that's it, the explanation. Here it is, the explanation for the rise of Christianity. And the reason we consider it a mystery is because we're here. A third of the world believes in Jesus. We know that a tiny handful of Jesus' followers somehow, somehow survived the first century, They survived persecution from Judaism. They survived the Roman Empire and multiplied to a point where there were little churches all around the Mediterranean Rim. And now, 2,000 years later, here we are. We know that happened. That is undeniable. The question in the, for us is, how in the world did it happen? And the how doesn't match the paradigm that's normally used to explain a movement or a, a change in culture. And the reason it doesn't fit, and the reason it doesn't work to view the rise of Christianity like we would view the rise of any other movement, is this. Jesus' message was the problem. Jesus' message... What's the problem? You see, Jesus never advocated any kind of liberation movement or revolution at all. His His message was not one of liberation. It wasn't, I'm going to liberate this group from the control of another group. No, that wasn't his message. Neither was it, well, let's all get together and we'll start a revolution and we'll turn over the status quo and we'll just do something new. You know, they'd often say to Jesus, but you talk of a kingdom. Are you you trying? Are you going to start a new kingdom? And Jesus would disappoint them every time. And he'd say things like, oh yes, by the way, did I fail to mention? My kingdom is not even of this, what? Of this world. My kingdom is not even of this world. To the point when Pilate, the Roman governor, tried Jesus, he came out to the people and said, seriously, I cannot find anything to accuse him of, for he's not a revolutionary. He's not introducing some kind of idea that's going to threaten the very foundational order. Now, in terms of Judaism, every time they tried to trap Jesus, and they did, Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm not trying to overturn Jewish law. That's not why I'm here. I'm not trying to diminish the Jewish traditions of faith. I'm actually here to take that law and actually raise the standard. There's no talk of an insurrection. There was no talk of liberation. He was not a revolutionary trying to introduce something brand new. The other problem with Jesus' message was that Jesus message was all about Jesus. And this set him apart from everybody else, who ever came along, and this was a problem. He never asked his followers to trust in his ideas. Never once did he say, put your trust in these ideals. Put your uh, uh, trust in these principles. Put your trust in these revolutionary notions that I'm introducing. Never. Instead, he instructed his followers to put their trust in him. In him. And so this was the problem. And this is what makes the rise of Christianity absolutely unexplainable. Except, and I emphasize, except for the very thing that we actually celebrate on this weekend called Easter. I can see the light breaking through. I can see the light breaking through. Even in the shadow times, you don't ever run and hide. I can see the light breaking through. I can feel the light breaking through.
1: When Jesus first walked onto the scene into the public eye, John the baptizer was baptizing in the Jordan River and John looks up and he sees Jesus approaching and here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, behold, the one who's going to explain to us about the Lamb of God who will one day take away the sin of the world. He doesn't look at Jesus and say, behold, here's the person that's gonna explain how to be forgiven. He looks at Jesus and he says to the crowd, behold, the Lamb of God, that person right there, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. See, the problem with Jesus' message was that Jesus' message was not about ideas. Jesus' message was about Jesus. One day, Jesus gets word from some friends of his that a very, very close friend of his was sick and about to die. And the messenger uh, said his sisters have said, please, please come to Bethany, drop what you're doing, come to Bethany because Lazarus is sick. And Jesus says to his uh, group of followers, oh, we're not going to go just yet. Let's wait a little bit. And he waits until Lazarus dies. And then he says, now we'll go. And they show up and Lazarus has already been buried and he's already in the tomb. And Mary and Martha come out to meet Jesus. And they say something to Jesus that maybe you've said to God, uh, maybe in your own way. They said, Jesus, if you'd been here, our brother would not have died. In other words, Jesus, you were late. Jesus, you didn't answer our prayer. Jesus, you're making it very difficult for us to believe in all of your claims. And what Jesus says next is extraordinary. He doesn't say to them, Mary, Martha, listen, I want to explain what life after death is like. He doesn't say, well, at least he lived a good life. At least he isn't suffering anymore. And now he's in a better place. He doesn't say, Mary, Martha, let me explain that there's a resurrection. Let me explain how the resurrection works. Let me tell you some principles and some ideas and some things that you can pass on to your children and your children's children. And a couple thousand years from now, some people will be gathered to talk about it. No, Jesus looks at each of these women whom he loved, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm not just here to tell you about it. I'm not here to explain it to you. I am the resurrection and the life. And he says, the one who believes in me will live. See, the problem with Jesus is that he kept talking about Jesus. The problem with Jesus' message was that he was at the center of his own message. And none of Jesus' followers ever indicated or even implied that the reason that Jesus came was to leave us with some new teaching that we could pass on to the next generation. See, the problem with Jesus was his message. And it wasn't liberating for a group of oppressed people. And it wasn't revolutionary in that sense. He didn't try to overturn anything within culture. He just kind of kept talking about himself. So when Jesus died, their hopes died with him. When Jesus died, there wasn't one single person standing at the cross going, well now that our leader's dead let's take his teaching and let's keep his teaching alive. There was there was no teaching that would have made much sense with the death of Jesus. Because when Jesus died no one took his claims seriously. When Jesus died unlike any other leader that we celebrate when Jesus died the movement died with him. Because he was the movement. He was the message, he was the center. It wasn't just about principles and parables and ideas. It was about Jesus. In fact, it's so interesting that even before Jesus was crucified, his closest followers abandoned him. And here's why this is important. The very people, the very people who brought us this story of Jesus, in their telling of the story, present themselves as cowards. See, when you and I, when we write ourselves into a story, When we're writing a story about ourselves, we don't naturally write ourselves in as the cowards, right? Somehow we figure out how to write ourselves in as the hero. I mean, I do, don't you? But the very people who brought us everything that we know about Jesus, they all admit that Jesus was arrested and they ran away. And Peter, who's the one who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter finds himself sitting by a fire, and a middle school girl walks up to him and says, hey, you're one of Jesus' followers. And he's like, what? No, I don't even know the guy. So Jesus is arrested, and they lose faith. When Jesus died, the movement died with him. So the mystery is, how is it that we are here today? How is it that today one-third of the world still calls his name and claims that he is Lord? How is it that this crazy movement that seemed to die when he died survived even the first century? Well, here's how it unfolded. Early, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Jesus had been crucified. A couple men kind of in a hurry had wrapped the body up and put the body in a tomb so some women show up at the tomb on Sunday morning to finish the Jewish burial process. And they're wondering, you know, I don't even know. We haven't thought about this, but how in the world are we going to move that stone? And we, we need to properly bury this body because they did it hurriedly but because the sun was going down and it was Passover and it was the Sabbath and you can't do this stuff on the Sabbath. So it was done in a hurry. In the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, it says, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. This is a very, very interesting detail. In the first century, women had no credibility. In the first century, a woman could not appear to testify in court. A woman's testimony was considered uh, unreliable. So uh, if, there was, if there was any way possible... For Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in their telling of the story, to somehow tell the story of the resurrection and tell it without including the women in the story, they would have done that. Because the fact that women were the first people to find the empty tomb automatically diminished their credibility. And the fact that women were were there there first kind of discredited this account in the first century. So, you know why the gospel writers tell us that women were the first people to discover an empty tomb? Because women were the first to discover an empty tomb. That's the only reason they would have written the women into this story. John says, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's John, the one who's telling this story, an eyewitness. She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. You know why this is important? Because Mary Magdalene didn't go running to the disciples and say he's risen from the dead. (laughs) This is important. The people who brought us the story of the resurrection sheepishly and honestly admit we thought that when he died, he would stay dead. So when the women found an empty tomb, they did not automatically assume a resurrection. They assumed that someone had stolen the body. They we running back to the, the disciples, and, and they say, somebody has taken the Lord, and we don't know where they've put him. Luke says in his account, he says, I've carefully and meticulously investigated all this. And he tells us that here's how the, the men responded to the women. He says, but they, the men, did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So when they came running to the men to say the body is missing, the men didn't say, praise God, it's a resurrection. <laughs> They listen to the women and they're like, you're crazy. You went to the wrong tomb. You don't know what you're talking about. This is nonsense. Verse 3 of John 20. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. is such an interesting detail. They were both running, but the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He, John, stooped in, or stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And you know why John... Uh, peeked into the tomb, and did not go in? Because it's a tomb, right? I mean, we're kind of freaked out by that, but there were lots of rules for the Jewish people about tombs and dead bodies and all that. So he stopped at the door and looked in. (laughs) Verse 6, then Simon Peter arrived and went inside he also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. So this, this cloth, this is interesting to me, the cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linens. Verse 8, then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, finally, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Verse 10, then they went home. Do you know when John, who spent over three years following Jesus around, you know when he finally believed? It wasn't the teaching, it wasn't the persuasive speech, it wasn't the miracles, it wasn't the crucifixion, it was this empty tomb. Jesus' followers re-engaged with the message of Jesus, not because the message of Jesus uh, was so Compelling on its own, not because of the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus' followers re engaged because of someone they saw, the resurrected Jesus. This is fascinating. After Jesus rose from the dead, suddenly these cowards, these men who didn't even expect a resurrection, these men who went and hid, now they went out into the streets of Jerusalem and they began to preach and teach. And they didn't preach and teach the principles of Jesus. They didn't preach and teach the parables of Jesus. They didn't preach and teach even the love of Jesus. They didn't preach and teach anything Jesus taught. The book of Acts tells us what happened after the resurrection. It says they went into the streets of Jerusalem and they had a four-point message. Point number one, you killed him. <laughs> so they're talking to the people who are actually there saying, crucify him, crucify him. So you killed him, number one. God raised him, number two. We've seen him, number three. And number four, now say you're sorry. Repent. So this was their message. You killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. Now repent of your sin. In one of his messages, Peter said it this way. This is the Peter who ran away, the Peter who denied knowing Jesus. This is Peter who was afraid to be associated with Jesus after the crucifixion. He says now with all this boldness, you, you killed. So these are men who were, who were there as part of the crucifixion, part of the trial. He says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. How do we know? We are witnesses of this. See, the reason this is the best weekend Maybe for those of you who've been considering becoming a Jesus follower, the reason this is the best weekend to finally decide, you know what, instead of hoping that if I ever see God and if there is a judgment, you know, that I'm going to tell God how good I was, how hard I tried, how much I promised because I've sort of rehearsed this speech, right? If you've ever considered that perhaps you need to place your faith in what Christ did on your behalf, I just say this is the weekend to do it. Because the resurrection of Jesus solves history's greatest mystery. Which I think is, how did the church survive? I mean, how did the movement begin? How did the movement move through the first and second and third and fourth into the fifth and sixth centuries even to today? How did it survive? Because when Jesus died, there were no believers. When Jesus died, the movement died. And what reengaged his followers with his teaching wasn't his teaching. It was his resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ not only solves history's greatest mystery, the resurrection of Jesus, more importantly, punctuates the point of his crucifixion, which is the forgiveness of sin. So here's what this means for us. It means if you are a Christian, your hope is not in vain. It means that when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, it means there is a resurrection and there is life. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, and James, Jesus' brother, show up on the other side of the resurrection and they say, we believed, and then we didn't believe, but we believe again. Not because of what he taught, but because we saw a resurrected Jesus. So this is why, no matter how bad your church experience has been, no matter how crooked the last Christian you did business with was, no matter what you saw in your Christian home growing up, no matter what you've seen in terms of hypocrisy in the church, no matter how many unanswered prayers you've had, no matter how disappointed you've been with God, I would say to you on this Easter weekend that you should give Jesus another look. Not because of what he taught, but first and foremost, because he claimed to have died for your sin. And then he rose from the dead, and the resurrected Jesus was seen by over 500 people at one time. And the people that reengaged with the message of Jesus after the resurrection, most of them died as martyrs, and they died not for what they believed. They died for what they said they saw, a resurrected Savior. So if you've been on the fence, you've been thinking about it, you've been considering I just want you to know, I don't think there's any better time than right now. So I'd like to invite you to join me in a prayer. This prayer doesn't make you a Christian. This prayer is simply expressing to God, God, I believe that Jesus is your son. Just like Peter said, I believe that when he died, he died for my sin. And now I'm going to transfer all of my trust from me and whatever else I've been trusting in to what Jesus did on my behalf. I'm placing my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins and a restored relationship with my heavenly father. The scripture tells us and the New Testament writers who, who knew him tell us For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in his ideas, no. His teachings, no. His revolutionary thoughts, no. Whoever believes in him or trusts in him will not perish but have eternal life. And we know that not simply because he was a good teacher. We know that not just because he was crucified. We know that because he was raised from the dead and was seen. So I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. You can pray with your, eye, uh, your eyes closed, with your heads bowed, with your eyes open. It doesn't matter. You can change the words. You can pray this silently in your heart. Would you say something like, Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that when he died, he died for my sin. I believe that he rose from the dead and was seen. In this moment, I place all of my faith in his death on the cross as the payment for my sin. Come into my life. Thank you for making me part of your family. I want to spend the rest of my life as a follower of the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray for all those who in this moment have decided that they would seal in their own hearts this decision. I pray there would be something that they would never forget, that this would be a moment they would look back on for the rest of their lives and say, that's when I became a follower of Jesus on that Easter weekend. We pray all this in the matchless name of your son, Jesus.